Hey there, Inland Hills. Really excited that you're joining us today. And I'm actually really excited about the topic that we're going to talk about today too. So we're in week three of a series that we're just calling How to Survive Your Family. The idea is that for many of us, we are cooped up with our family during this time as we're practicing social distancing and sheltering in place, or we're estranged from our families, like we're far from them. And so we're not able to see them as often. So we either find ourselves perhaps missing them or perhaps missing being away from them. And so we thought maybe it'd be good for a few weeks to just talk about this particular topic because there's a lot of different pieces to it. So uh, the first week, we just talked about how Jesus redefines the family. And we're actually going to come back to that today because it's really important for the way that we're talking about things. And then last week, we talked about Jesus calling us to forgive our families that for, for any of us who grow up, whether it's a healthy family or an unhealthy family, there will almost certainly be times when we have to forgive those members of our family who have hurt us, whether advertently or inadvertently. And so we really looked at that last week. If these two topics interest you, I would highly encourage you to go back and watch the last two weeks. Today, we're going to talk about something a little different. Today, we're going to talk about how to be single, or perhaps a subtitle for this one should be how to let other people be single. Because what I found is that it's it's not often that the person who is single has an issue with being single. Certainly that is true sometimes, but but sometimes they just get hassled by other people who think they shouldn't be single anymore or constantly asking for updates about their love life or don't really understand that they might be completely satisfied being single. And so great question to ask is like, what are the attitudes that we have in our society and what do those come from? And what are the attitudes that we have in our church? And what does Jesus say about all of this? So this is kind of a fun, an exciting topic for us to jump into today. And my guess is you'll hear some stuff that you haven't maybe leaned into before or heard before, and I'm looking forward to chatting about it. So uh, let's talk about this issue because there are some challenges. First of all, you need to know that 45.2% of adults over the age of 18 in the USA are single. So this is not a small minority of the United States population. It's almost half. And in fact, even here at Inland Hills Church, a few months ago, we did a survey and we had about a thousand adults 18 and over respond here at Inland Hills Church. And one of the things we asked was about relationship status because we were just curious as to who's coming and how we can be most helpful. And here's what we found. About 33% of adults over the age of 18 at Inland Hills Church are single. So if, if we're thinking that churches or our church or the general populace is mostly made up of families, and then occasionally we should you know throw a bone to those who, who aren't married or who aren't uh, in a romantic relationship, it, it turns out actually the, the opposite of that is true, that that it's, it's almost 50-50. And here at our church and churches around this area, you're going to see a sizable group of people who are single. Now, there are difficulties to being single that if, if you're married or if you haven't been single in a while, you may not remember. And so I just want to chat through some of those today and then talk through what it looks like to, as a single person, meet those head on. And then as a community of faith, following after Jesus, what does it look like for us to hold and, and to give value, attribute value to uh, singleness? Because singleness is actually really positive in the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, I think that in our churches and in our society here in the United States of America, specifically in the West generally, we have so elevated uh, romantic relationships and marriage that people who have either chosen not to take that pathway or 
even have wanted to, but haven't uh, been able to find the person that they're looking for, like they feel somehow less than. And this is a major, major uh, struggle. So the difficulty of being single. First of all, there's a national stigma around it. In, in fact, if you're single in the United States, it's kind of assumed that you're just pre-married or pre-relationship. Like the assumption, the working assumption nationwide for, for large swaths of the population is that if you're single, that's just a temporary state and you are headed toward a romantic relationship, ro- romantic involvement or marriage down the road, perhaps a, a whole family. So people just kind of have that as their, as their starting place. And therefore, like for those of us who are single, we feel like we're constantly getting asked questions about you know our current state, whether we're dating anybody, seeing anyone, as if how we are right now is somehow less than how we should be later. And it just, like, it's not necessarily ever explicitly stated. It's the implications of the kinds of questions and conversations we find ourselves having with other people that can start to make us feel like, you know, others aren't okay with the relationship status that I currently have. So there's a national stigma. But beyond that, and unsurprisingly, there's a church stigma as well. I decided not to, but I could put up a number of quotes from prominent Christian leaders in the United States that talk about, you know, one of the the greatest ways that you can fulfill something in your life is to have a family or to raise children or to be married, something like that. And, And so there is a stigma within the church where I think for large swaths of the church actually haven't taken some of the teachings of Jesus and of Paul, who was one of his very first disciples, first apostles, uh, very seriously yet. Yeah, haven't wrestled with the full implications of what they said for the 21st century and what that might mean for some of us. So there's a, there's a national stigma, there's a church stigma, but, but perhaps more than that even, and this just kind of, this feeds both of these, kind of at the underlying of it. There is a myth of romantic completeness, a myth of romantic completeness that we just feel like if, if I'm actually going to be complete, then I need to be romantically fulfilled and that I am somehow incomplete if I'm not romantically and sexually fulfilled by someone else. That, that there's, there will always be a gaping hole in my life. And, and I got to tell you, there's, there's all kinds of reasons that this has entered into society. But I will tell you, it's not the same myth that drove families in the first century, when Jesus is actually walking around, he's teaching and he's showing others what it looks like to live a Godward life. They also saw single people as pre-married. They also, there was a stigma around those who didn't marry, but it wasn't about romantic completeness. For them, it was about passing on your genes. For them, it was about being able to have someone to pass on your property. It was about the functioning of society. Marriage was much more a a legal mechanism by which society operated. And, And therefore, like in the first century, you had many people choosing to, have sexual relationships outside of their marriage because um, th- the marriage wasn't necessarily meant to fulfill all of those needs for them. So while we continue to elevate marriage to a level that Jesus never does within our society, as, as far as it being for everyone and the natural trajectory for everybody, uh, and they did that in the first century as well, the reasons for that are very different. And I think that a huge part of this is basically the stories we tell. If you want to know like the, the, 
if you want to know like what someone aspires to within a culture, look at the heroes for that culture. And who are the heroes? Like, what are the myths that that culture tells? What are the stories that that culture tells about itself? And, and the reality is, we there is a whole industry. It's a huge industry in the United States and in the West generally of romantic movies, romantic TV shows, romantic books. Like, we have sold this myth of romantic completeness and, and business has been good. So you've probably seen movies and TV shows with famous dramatic lines, lovely lines between couples and how they, they, were, they were just, you know, all they were looking for in life is finally fulfilled and satisfied when they, when they find each other, going way back to the early 20th century. As soon as we could start putting things on film, we started putting romantic completeness on film, you know? Lines like, we'll always have Paris or... Here's looking at you, kid. Or you should be kissed and often and by somebody who knows how. Or um, you complete me. Shut up. You had me and hello. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. I'll never let go, Jack. I'll, I'll, I'll never let go. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. Nobody puts baby in a corner. We were on a break. Right? Like we, we can all say all the lines from the different shows and movies that we've seen. And there's this myth of romantic completeness that if, if I don't enter into some kind of romantic relationship, I am majorly missing out on something that God has for me. There's a myth of romantic relationships. Now, in the first century, while it was different within Roman and Jewish society, there was still a myth of marriage completeness that like if it really, you had to be married in order to be complete. In fact, in the first century, the rabbis and teachers would teach that if someone is not married, they're, they are incomplete. They are under a curse. If you weren't married by the time you were 20 or 30 years old, you were seen as cursed that the natural state of things was for you to be married. And it was an intensely patriarchal society. So who you were, your identity was largely inherited from who your father was. In fact, if you read through the Bible and you look at like family genealogies, it always talks about who the father, like they were the son of this man. They were the son of this man, the grandson of this man, because a huge part of who you were, you inherited from your, your family, like passing that on to you. So family was hugely important to them was hugely important. And this patriarchal society that what you, like how you were going to be in the world and how you're going to be perceived had to do with your father. What Jesus comes and he does is he completely flips that paradigm. He totally changes it. And whereas family was considered like one of the supreme things, Jesus, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, actually completely redefines what family even is. And you have to understand how important family was as a, a, like their understanding of God's fulfilling of his promises, as their understanding of continuing to pass on their, their, their history and their genealogy, all of that stuff to really understand just how radical what Jesus said was. So what I want to do real fast is to actually look again at a passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Luke 14, just with our patriarchal understanding to see how this would have hit people. So large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This passage out of Luke 14 is incredibly important for us to understand that Jesus is redefining family away from bloodlines and toward those who will do the will of his father, toward those who are in the family of faith. In other words, like what Jesus seems to be announcing here is that you cannot have 
competing allegiances in your life. And as long as your highest priority of allegiance is to your family or to your father, you will never fully understand the kingdom of God. So whereas all of the people saw themselves as basically descendants of their father, that the father figure held the most important, Jesus takes that relationship between one and their earthly father. And he says, instead, you need to think about your relationship with your heavenly father. You need to think about your, your Abba father, your, 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 your dad who created the whole world and created you and loves you and sustains you. That is where you get your identity. That is where your allegiance should lie. It's not that family relationships in the world are totally unimportant. It's just that you can't have competing allegiances. And first and foremost, you need to have allegiance to your heavenly father. In doing this, by the way, he would have greatly devalued the family unit in comparison to the culture all around him. But he also would have removed the curse. If it's no longer that you have to get all of who you are from either being a father or being a parent that passes on a lineage, if you no longer have to get all that you are from your earthly parentage, if you can get all of that from God, then those who are single are no longer seen as cursed. And Jesus actually chooses to model this. Jesus does not get married. Many of the disciples who followed him in the first century chose not to get married. They seem to model that there is actually a way to be single and therefore to have more time and space for your relationship with God and for pushing the kingdom forward. And that that was a wonderful option for Christians to choose should they so choose it. it they are not in the New Testament, seen as second-class citizens. In fact, if anything, it may be those who choose to get married who are seen as not having as much space and time to follow after Jesus as those who choose to remain single. So we have this passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, and he's teaching here about singleness versus being married. So uh, he says this, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, right? Like if you're unmarried, it's good to stay unmarried. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is a fascinating passage because like, well, Paul doesn't seem to think that highly of marriage. It seems like, okay, look, if you're single, it's actually better for you to stay single like I am because you'll have all this time that you can give to the furthering of the kingdom of God. And that's what this this, this life is about, to really share this gospel message with other people, to live it out fully. So if you're unmarried, it's good to stay that way. But if you just can't control yourself, right? If you just can't deal with the fire of your own loins, then go ahead, I guess. It's better to, to marry than to burn with passion. That's, that's kind of how this passage feels if you're just reading it. Now, Paul in other places elevated marriage as a, as a helpful understanding of how God basically treats the church, that God is, is the bride and that the church is the bridegroom and that, that, that God is like basically marrying the church and that marriage then is a is an earthly foretaste and sign of what is to come. And, and God in the New Testament, actually, like when Jesus says, t- tells his disciples that I'm, I'm going you know, to build a place for you and I will come back for you again, he's actually using a metaphor that was used in first century Jewish weddings. So what we see r- repeatedly is God using the wedding metaphor when he wants to give comfort. It's not that It's not that in the first century they were totally discarding marriage or saying that it was unhelpful or not good. It's just that they were saying, Singleness is absolutely just 
as good of an option as being married. And that whether you choose to be married or choose to be single, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And, and we need to keep in mind that there are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You know, Paul goes on in other places to say whether you're um, Jew or Greek, uh, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, male or female, like we are all one in the family of God. Why? Because we've been adopted into this broader family that our, our father is Abba Father, our God and creator. And that's the most important place we can look to for our parentage, for our inheritance, for who we are, for identity, all of those things. And therefore, the pressure is off of the marriage as we look to God for those things. So Jesus removes the curse. Jesus shows the preferred lifestyle. Now, there are challenges to this specifically in the West and specifically in the United States. There are challenges to it. Of course there are. And I, I just want to go ahead and say that we were made for relationship with God. It's true. We were made for relationship with God, but we were made for relationship with other people as well. We were made for relationship with other people as well. What this means is like God created us as social beings. And, and in fact, it's interesting, you know, as, as we've been socially distancing, uh, th- there, are, there are folks who consider themselves introverts and still consider themselves introverts, but the not being around people, not going into work regularly, not going into class regularly, um, not being able to grab coffee with a friend, even though they're introverts, they are feeling the weight of being like socially separated from other people. Not always relationally separated. We're using technology in fascinating ways in order to continue to connect, but there's something about sitting down for a meal with other people. And for those of you who are single, like I know like if you live alone, like I've heard from a few of you over the last several weeks, and I know that that, that for some of you, this has been a very trying time because you don't have anybody else living in your house. And it is not the same to call people or FaceTime people or Zoom people or Skype people or whatever you are using in order to reach out to other people. It's not the same as being present with them in the same room. And you need to know that, that that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, of course. Because we were made for relationship with God, absolutely. We'll never be fully fulfilled apart from this, but we were also made for relationship with other people. And so if you're single, there's no problem being single and you're not a second-class citizen. In fact, like Paul and Jesus, I think would say that you are walking a very good path but none of us were made for total abs- like for total relationship abstinence. We, we were actually made in order to, like, to have deep friendships. So for those of you who are married, you need to know that your spouse will never give you everything you need relationally from other people. You need to have friends. For those of you who are single, you need to know that you, you won't be happy. You won't be fully fulfilled. Just being all by yourself, just because you're not married or in a romantic relationship, like, doesn't mean that you shouldn't like, really lean in and develop deep, deep friendships. And I think part of the challenge then in the 21st century is that we don't have much of a concept for non-erotic relationships. Like it seems like all the relationships that we push that we see as most valuable are those that are somehow like uh, like bound, bound up with sex or bound up with marriage. And so I just wanted to look really quickly. There's a number of these relationships in the scripture that I think are really healthy, but there's one between uh, David 
and Jonathan, who is uh, David's, there's a king in place. It's Jonathan's father. And they should have been mortal enemies because David was anointed to be the next king after Jonathan's father, Saul, was to step down. But instead they became best of friends. So uh, this is from 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse number 16 and and following. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. These two loved one another so much that they were willing to lay down their life for the other. And in fact, we, we see this play out in numbers of different chapters. And, and it's not the only relationship like that. We see lots of close relationships between a man and a man or a woman and a, mo- a woman or a man and a woman. That's a platonic relationship. We see those in the scriptures. And I think one of the challenges then for us today in affirming singleness for all of its beauty and worth is that we have to recognize that these deep friendships are necessary if we're going to continue to be socially healthy and happy. So we need to affirm those things. And we don't need to say it's unusual or strange for someone to choose to be single. And we need to recognize that for some people, um, their choice will be to remain single and that that is good. That's not second-class citizens. In fact, they may choose to do more for the kingdom of God than we are able to do if, if we choose to be married or to have, to be married and to have children. I've shared this with a few people before, but I just, I think it's helpful. It's a helpful reminder for me always. Uh, Early on in my ministry career, I was talking to a a mentor pastor of mine. He's, you know, he's 30 years older than I am, way far down the road. And he told me a story about when he was, you know, he's probably in his 10th or 11th year of ministry and he began writing books and people were interested in what he had to say about faith and what he had to say about leadership. And so he was on his second or third book one day and his, his kids at this point were in junior high and high school. And he came home and uh, he went to his office after a full day of work and he started to write because he had a deadline coming up. And his, his son came in the house and went over to his wife's, his son's mom. And was was like, hey, um, where's, where's dad? She said, oh, well, he's in the back working on his book. And he said, man, I hate it when dad writes a writes his books because I feel like I, I don't see him for months at a time. And so later that night, she shared with him what their son had said earlier that day. And he called his publisher, he put the book down, and he didn't write another book until all of his kids had graduated from college. That was the choice he made. So he told me that story and he said, Josh, I don't ever want you to confuse your calling with your potential, right? You may have the potential to go do all kinds of things, speak at conferences, plant churches, you know, uh, write books, whatever that is. You may have the potential to do that. That may be within, inside of you. But if, if you've chosen to get married, if you've chosen to have children, then, then that's a calling in your life. And you can't sacrifice your calling for your potential. There will be some people who feel called to like completely live into their potential for the sake of the kingdom of God. And they don't want to swerve left or right for that. They don't want to enter into a relationship with with a romantic relationship with somebody else that could detract for that. They don't want to have children because they want to live into that. And, And that would be an honorable and good choice for them if God's calling them to that. That's not being a second class citizen. That is someone who is living out a fruitful life 
and living into both their potential and their calling. And it may just look different than some of us who are married. And we need to be able to affirm that. And we need to be able to say that's good. And we shouldn't be constantly asking the question, like, are you dating anybody right now? Or what's your plan? Or like, Because for some people, that is absolutely the best and most God-honoring path they could take with their lives. So for those of you who are single, you just need to hear that you are living a life that is admirable. And for those of you who, who are not, you need to understand that while you have a particular calling in your life, not everybody else will. In the kingdom of God, singleness is honorable. And for those of us who are single, like I'm so excited about what God may be doing in your life. And for those of us who are not, let us be as supportive and helpful uh, as we possibly can be. And let us cheer everyone on, regardless of what their calling is in life, that we all might be part of this radical family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that Jesus redefines family. Thank you that Jesus points us all to our true father, our Abba father, who, who is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, and who loves us as his children. Thank you, Father, that you call each of us to a little something different in life and that there's no longer slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, but that we are all, God, a part of this amazing family and that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Inland Hills Church Weekly Messages podcast. To learn more about Inland Hills, including info about our church ministries and ways to get involved, visit inlandhills.com. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and leave a review so others can find our messages of hope and encouragement. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.